Chapter 4 of Hopalong Cassidy's Roundup. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bandanaman99. Hopalong Cassidy's Roundup by Clarence Edward Mulford. Chapter 4 The Vagrant Sioux. Buckskin gradually readjusted itself to the conditions which had existed before its sudden leap into the limelight as a town which did things. The soiree at Houston House had drifted into the past and was now substantially established as an epoch in the history of the town. Exuberant joy gave way to dignity and deprecation and to solid satisfaction, and the conversations across the bar brought forth parallels of the affair to be judged impartially, and the impartial judgment was, unanimously, that while there had undoubtedly been good fights before Perry's Bend had disturbed the local quiet, they were not quite up to the new standard of strenuous hospitality. Finally, the heat blistered everything back into the old state, and the shadows continued to be in demand. One afternoon, a month after the reception of the honourable delegation from Perry's Bend, the town of Buckskin seemed desolated, and the earth and the buildings thereon were as huge furnaces radiating a visible heat. But when the blazing sun had begun to settle in the west, it awoke with a clamour which might have been laid to the efforts of a zealous Satan. At this time, it became the mecca of two score or more joyous cowboys from the neighbouring ranches, who livened things as those knights of the saddle could. In the scant but heavy shadow of Cowan's saloon sat a picturesque figure from whom came guttural, resonant rumblings which mingled in a spirit of loneliness with the fretful sighs of a flea-tormented dog. Both dog and master were vagrants, and they were tolerated because it was a matter of supreme indifference as to who came or how long they stayed, as long as the ethics and unwritten law of the cow country were inviolate. And the breaking of these caused no unnecessary anxiety, for justice was both speedy and sure. When the outcast Sue and his yellow dock had drifted into town some few months before, they had caused neither expostulation nor inquiry, as the cardinal virtue of that whole broad land was to ask a man no questions which might prove embarrassing to all concerned. Judgment was of observation, not of history, and a man's past would reveal itself through actions. It mattered little whether he was an embezzler or the wild chip from some prosperous eastern block, as men came to the range to forget and to lose touch with the pampered east, and the range absorbed them as its own. A man was only a man as his skin contained the qualities necessary, and the illiterate who could ride and shoot and live to himself was far more esteemed than the educated who could not do those things. The more a man depends upon himself, and the closer his contact to a quick judgment, the more laconic and even poised he becomes, and the knowledge that he is himself a judge tends to create caution and judgment. He has no court to uphold his honour and to offer him protection, so he must be quick to protect himself 
and to maintain his own standing. His nature saved him, or it executed, and the range absolved him of all unpaid penalties of a careless past. He became a man born again, and took up his burden, the exactions of a new environment, and he lived as long as those exactions gave him the right to live. He must tolerate no restrictions of his natural rights, and he must not restrict, for the one would proclaim him a coward, the other a bully, and both received short shrifts in that land of the self-protected. The basic law of nature is the survival of the fittest. So, when the wanderers found their level in buckskin, they were not even asked by what name men knew them. Not caring to hear a name which might not harmonise with their idea of the fitness of things, the cowboys of the Bar 20 had, with a freedom born of excellent livers and fearless temperaments, bestowed names befitting their sense of humour and adaptability. The official title of the Sioux was By and By. The dog was known as Fleas. Never had names more clearly described the objects to be represented, for they were excellent examples of cowboy discernment and aptitude. In their eyes, by and by was a man. He could feel and he could resent insults. They did not class him as one of themselves, because he did not have energy enough to demand and justify such a classification. With them, he had a right to enjoy his life as he saw fit, so long as he did not trespass on or restrict the rights of others. They were not analytic in temperament, neither were they moralists. He was not a menace to society, because society had superb defences. So they vaguely recognised his many poor qualities, and clearly saw his few good ones. He could shoot, when permitted, with the best. No horse, however refractory, had ever been known to throw him. He was an adept at following the trails left by rustlers, and that was an asset. He became of value to the community. He was an economic factor. His ability to consume liquor with indifferent effects raised him another notch in their estimation. He was not always talking when someone else wished to, another count, there remained about him that stoical indifference to the petty, that observant nonchalance of the Indian. And there was a suggestion, faint, it was true, of a dignity common to chieftains. He was a log of grave deference which tossed on their sea of mischievous hilarity. He wore a pair of corduroy trousers, known to the carefree as pants, which were held together by numerous patches of what had once been brilliantly coloured calico. A pair of suspenders, torn into two separate straps, made a belt for himself and a collar for his dog. The trousers had probably been secured during a fit of absent-mindedness on his part, when their former owner had not been looking. Tucked at intervals in the top of the corduroys, the exceptions making convenient shelves for alkali dust, was what at one time had been a stiff-bosomed shirt. This was open down the front and back, the weight of the trousers on the belt holding it firmly on the square shoulders of the wearer, thus precluding the necessity of collar buttons. A pair of moccasins, 
beautifully worked with wampum, protected his feet from the onslaughts of cacti and the inquisitive and pugnacious sandflies, and lying across his lap was a repeating Winchester rifle. Not dangerous, because it was empty, a condition due to the wisdom of the citizens in forbidding anyone to sell, trade, or give him those tubes of concentrated trouble, because he could get drunk. The two were contented and happy. They had no cares nor duties, and their pleasures were simple and easily secured, as they consisted of sleep and a proneness to avoid moving. Like the untrammeled coyote, their bed was where sleep overtook them, their food, what the night wrapped in a sense of security, or the generosity of the cowboys of the Bar Twenty. No tub-ridden Diogenes ever knew so little of responsibility, or as much unadulterated content. There is a penalty even to civilization and ambition. When the sun had cast its shadows beyond by and by's feet, the air became charged with noise. Shots, shouts, and the rolling thunder of madly pounding hoofs echoed flatly throughout the town. By and by yawned, stretched, and leaned back, revelling in the semi-conscious ecstasy of the knowledge that he did not have to immediately get up. Fleas opened one eye and cocked an ear in inquiry, and then rolled over on his back, squirmed, and sighed contentedly and long. The outfit of the Bar Twenty had come to town. The noise came rapidly nearer and increased in volume as the riders turned the corner and drew rein suddenly, causing their mounts to slide on their haunches in ankle-deep dust. Hello, old buck with the pants. How's your liver? Come up and irrigate, old tank. Chase the flea ranch and trail along. These were a few of the salutations discernible among the medley of playful yells, the safety valves of supercharged good nature. Scree! yelled Hopalong Cassidy, letting off a fusillade of shots in the vicinity of fleas, who rapidly retreated around the corner where he wagged his tail in eager expectation. He was not disappointed, for a cowpony tore around in pursuit, and Hopalong leaned over and scratched the yellow back, thumping it heartily, and, tossing a chunk of beef into the open jaws of the delighted dog, departed as he had come. The advent of the outfit meant a square meal, and the dog knew it. In Cowans, lined up against the bar, the others were earnestly and assiduously endeavouring, with a promise of success, to get by-and-by drunk, which endeavours coincided perfectly with by-and-by's idea of the fitness of things. The fellowship and the liquor combined to thaw out his reserve and loosen his tongue. After gazing with an air of injured surprise at the genial loosening of his knees, he gravely handed his rifle with an exaggerated sweep of his arm to the cowboy nearest him, and wrapped his arms around the recipient to ensure his balance. The rifle was passed from hand to hand until it came to Buck Peters, who gravely presented it to its owner as a new gun. By and by threw out his stomach in an endeavour to keep his head in line with his heels, and grasping the weapon with both hands, turned to Cohen 
to whom he gave it. You have this gun. Me got two. Me keep new one. Maybe so. Then he loosened his belt and drank long and deep. A shadow darkened the doorway, and Hopalong limped in, spying by and by, pushing the bottle into his mouth while Red Connors propped him. He grinned, and took out five silver dollars, which he jingled under by and by's eyes, causing that worthy to lay aside the liquor and erratically grab for the tantalising fortune. Not yet, Sabe, said Hopalong, changing the position of the money. If you want to corral this here herd of Somolians, you has to ride a chaos what red bet me you can't ride. You has got to grow on that there saddle, and stayed growed for five whole minutes by Buck's ticker. I ain't a-gonna tell you he's any sawhorse, for you'd know better, as you reckons red wouldn't bet on no losing proposition if he knowed better, which same he don't. You straddles that four-legged cloudburst, and you gets these, Sabe. I ain't seen the chaos yet that you couldn't freeze to, and I'm back in my opinions with my moral support and one month's pay. By and by's eyes began to glitter as the meaning of the words sifted through his befuddled mind. Ride a horse, five dollars. Ride a five dollars horse. Horses ride dollars. Then he straightened up and began to speak in an incoherent jumble of Sioux and bad English. He, the mighty rider of the Sioux, he, the bravest warrior and greatest hunter, could he ride a horse for five dollars? Well, he rather thought he could. Grasping Red by the shoulder, he tacked the door and narrowly missed hitting the bottom step first, landing, as it happened, in the soft dust, with Red's leg around his neck. Somewhat sobered by the jar, he stood up and apologised to the crowd for Red getting in the way, declaring that Red was a heap gooden, and that he didn't mean to do it. The outfit of the Bar 20 was, perhaps, the most famous of all from Canada to the Rio Grande. The foreman, Buck Peters, controlled a crowd of men who had all the instincts of boys that had shown no quarter to many rustlers and who, while always carefree and easy-going, even fighting with great good humour and carelessness, had established the reputation of being the most reckless gang of daredevil gunfighters that ever pounded leather. Crooked gaming houses, from El Paso to Cheyenne, and from Phoenix to Leavenworth, unanimously and enthusiastically damned them from their boots to their sombreros, and the sheriffs and marshals of many localities had received from their hands most timely assistance, and some trouble. Wiry, indomitable, boyish and generous, they were splendid examples of virile manhood, and, surrounded as they were with great dangers and a unique civilization, they should not, in justice, be judged by opinions born of the commonplace. They were real cowboys, which means, public opinion to the contrary notwithstanding, that they were not lawless nor drunken shooting bullies who held life cheaply, as their kin has been unjustly pictured. 
but while these men were naturally peaceable, they had to continually rub elbows with men who were not. Gamblers, criminals, bullies and the riffraff that fled from the protected east had drifted among them in great numbers, and it was this class that caused the trouble. The hard-working cowpunchers lived according to the law of the land, and they obeyed that greatest of all laws, that of self-preservation. Their fun was boisterous, but they paid for all the damage they inflicted. Their work was one continual hardship, and the reaction of one extreme swings far toward the limit of its antithesis. Go back to the apple, if you would trace the beginning of self-preservation and the need. Buck Peters was a man of mild appearance, somewhat slow of speech and correspondingly quick of action, who never became flurried. His was the master hand that controlled, and his colts enjoyed the reputation of never missing when a hit could have been expected with reason. Many floods, stampedes and blizzards had assailed his nerves, but he yet could pour a glass of liquor held at arm's length through a knothole in the floor without wetting the wood. Next in age came Lanky Smith, a small, undersized man of retiring disposition. Then came Skinny Thompson, six feet four on his bared soles, and true to his name, Hopalong described him as the shadow of a chalk mark. Pete Wilson, the slow-witted and very tacton, and Billy Williams, the wavering pessimist, were of ordinary height and appearance. Red Connors, with hair that shamed the name, was the possessor of a temper which was as dry as tinder. His greatest weakness was his regard for the rifle as a means of preserving peace. Johnny Nelson was a protégé, and he could do no wrong. The last, Hopalong Cassidy, was a combination of irresponsibility, good humour, good nature, love of fighting, and nonchalance when face to face with danger. His most prominent attribute was that of always getting into trouble without any intention of so doing. In fact, he was much aggrieved and surprised when it came. It seemed as though when any bad man desired to add to his reputation, he invariably selected Hopalong as the means. A fact due, perhaps, to the perversity of things in general. Bad men became scarce soon after Hopalong became a fixture in any locality. He had been crippled some years before in a successful attempt to prevent the assassination of a friend, Sheriff Harris of Albuquerque, and he still possessed a limp. When Red had relieved his feelings and had dug the alkali out of his ears and eyes, he led the Sioux to the rear of the saloon, where a pinto was busily engaged in endeavouring to pitch a saddle from its back, employing the intervals in trying to see how much of the picket rope he could wrap around his legs. When by and by saw what he was expected to ride, he felt somewhat relieved, for the pony did not appear to have more than the ordinary amount of cussedness. He waved his hand, and Johnny and Red bandaged the animal's eyes, which quieted him at once. And then they untangled the rope from around his legs, and saw that the kinchers were secure. 
motioning to by and by that all was ready. They jerked the bandage off as the Indian settled himself in the saddle. Had by and by been really sober, he would have taken the conceit out of the pony in chunks, and as it was, he experienced no great difficulty in holding his seat, but in his adult state of mind, he grasped the end of the kinch strap in such a way that when the pony jumped forward in its last desperate effort, the buckle slipped and the kinch became unfastened, and by and by, still seated in the saddle, flew head foremost into the horse trough, where he spilled much water. As this happened, Cowan turned the corner, and when he saw the wasted water, which he had to carry bucketful at a time, from the wells a good quarter of a mile away, his anger blazed forth, and yelling, he ran for the drenched Sioux, who was just crawling out of his bath. When the unfortunate saw the irate man bearing down on him, he sputtered in rage and fear, and, turning, he ran down the street, with Cowan thundering flat-footedly behind on the fat man's gallop, to the hysterical cheers of the delighted outfit, who saw in it nothing but a good joke. When Cowan returned from his hopeless task, blowing and wheezing, he heard sundry remarks, sotto voce, which were not calculated to increase his opinion of his physical condition. Seems to me, remarked the irrepressible Hopalong, that one of those cayuses has got the heaves. It sure sounds like it, acquiesced Johnny, red in the face from holding in his laughter. And say, somebody interferes. All knock-kneed animals do, ye heathen, supplied Red. Hey, you, let up on that and have a drink on the house, invited Cowan. If I gets that darn war whoop, I'll make you think there's been a cyclone. I'll see how long that bum hangs around this here burg, I will. Red's eyes narrowed, and his temper got the upper hand. He ain't no bum when you gives him rot good at a quarter of a dollar a glass, is he? Any time that bum gets razzled out for nothing more than this, why, I goes too. And I ain't say nothing about going peaceable like neither. I knowed something like this would happen, dolefully sang out Billy Williams, strong on the side of his pessimism. For the Lord's sake, have you broke out? asked Red disgustedly. I'm going to hit the trail, but just keep this afore your mind. If by and by gets in any accidents, or ain't in sight when I comes to town again, this here climate'll be a heap sight hotter than it is now. No hard feelings, Sabby. It's just a casual bit of advice. Come on, fellows, let's amble. I'm hungry. As they raced across the plain toward the ranch, a pair of beady eyes, snapping with a drunken rage, watched them from an arroyo, and when Cowan entered the saloon the next morning, he could not find by and bys rifle, which he had placed behind the bar. He also missed a handful of cartridges from the box near the cash drawer, and had he looked closely at his bottled whiskey, he would have noticed a loss there. A horse was missing from a Mexican's corral, and there were rumours that several Indians had been seen far out on the plain.
End of chapter 4